0: The ending of a day for us quite a calm, calm ending to a day, at least for me. This moment's a bit like the end of the outbreath that Ursula was talking about. Sunday evening is sort of like the end of the out-breath for a lot of the Western world For the rush of Monday. It is Sunday, isn't it? Originally the Sunday was, uh, well, at sometime i suppose sunday was supposed to be a sabbath which which shabbat or sabbath it was meant to mean a, a cessation or a pause just as in the mythical terms of the old testament the world was created in six days and then on the seventh day God paused to check it out, to reflect on it. (laughs) Get back to basics. (laughs) It's really what it's... To me, that's a mystical sort of statement that uh, of all the time that we put into creation, be good to have at least one-seventh of it. stop, to pause, to recognize what has been created and also and even more importantly to allow things to cease because in allowing things things to cease consciously when we recognize what we thought was there is not there then what's not there we don't cling at it. We see it's changing in permanent nature. And in not clinging there is resting. Resting in the foundation of the heart. Resting in the foundation of, of truth. Resting in that which is. It is said in the Buddhist tradition that the that which is the truth is undying. The Buddha never claimed to discover. To, to, to create. He never claimed to make the truth. His title which described what happened in his life was that he awakened to the truth which which is, which always is. And whether there's a Buddha or not, or wise beings or not, uh, there's always the Dhamma, there's always that which is. Whether or not there's anyone around who perceives the nature of things, that's a different story. And it's considered a great blessing to the world when there are beings who awaken to the truth, who rediscover, who who see the Dhamma, see the nature of things. Once the uh, Buddha gave a, a talk based on a question, when, and he was asked what, what gives rise to the great blessings of life, what really gives rise to blessings. He gave this whole talk called the Mangala Sutra, the, the teaching on blessings. And it's made up of a bunch of stanzas. And then the first stanza is asevana chabalanang pantidanancha sevana puja chapuja niyanang etamangalamuttamang. And the first stanza means uh, not to just seek out people who are foolish, but to try to associate with those who are wise. And this next line is the one I want to talk about. To praise that which is worthy of praise. Puja. Puja, cha, puja, niya, To praise that which is worthy of praise. Etamangal mutamang. This is the greatest blessing. And the Buddha goes through a whole list of others. But this is the first, the first stanza. And, uh, we've been talking on this retreat, practicing and exploring devotion. Exploring some of the tools of devotion, offering or bowing or chanting and exploring how it feels, whether it feels good or whether it brings up resistance. But, but what does that mean? The praise, that which is worthy of praise, why does that bring blessings? What does it mean? It brings blessings, the greatest blessing. I don't find this easy to talk about. Um, I know it's something that has happened in um, in the 18 years since I've encountered Buddhism, through the years as a monk and on afterwards. Is when I started this praising that which is worthy of praise leads to blessings I didn't really I didn't have any sense for that certainly I didn't have a devotional an obvious devotional nature to the Buddha that was for sure but I did have a devotional nature I noticed that I did like seeing in people that which was good wasn't always wise I mean, I went to school in the the southern part of America, which is known for some of the things that aren't so good. It's known for its racism down there. And I had one teacher who was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Y'all have heard of the Ku Klux Klan, yeah. And yet he liked me. and uh, i mean and in uh and in america my name is randy weinberg weinberg is uh, got jewish sound all over it clan <laughs> doesn't go for that but i did like i mean i know this guy had his bigoted side but he had his good side too and uh I mean, when I was 12 and 14, I didn't take him on head-on about his different beliefs, but I did like, just without thinking about it, I wasn't trying to be good or anything, but I did like noticing that in the person that I like and just feeding that, relating to that, plugging into that. And now that I look back at that tendency, which I, I didn't really think about it at the time, that brings blessings. When you praise anything that's worthy of praise, you connect with that energy. You feed that energy. You you, you, you flow with that energy. And, and somehow when, when, when uh, I got into this... Uh, spiritual path, this meditation path, and then starting to get a feeling for how these teachings actually work. What results started to happen in a life when I actually had people encouraging me to, you know, notice what you say, notice what you do, bring some restraint into your life, consider the welfare of others, be honest about your mistakes, Someone actually starts encouraging you about steadying the mind, learning what it means to cultivate composure and sustained presence of mind. Getting maybe a taste, starting to get a taste for tranquility, for peacefulness. Then meeting Sangha, meeting other beings who are actually practicing this uh, path, and actually meeting beings who, who seem really nice to be around they're happy, they're peaceful, I think of this, this monk here, Ajahn Chah, I just like sitting near him, he's dead now, oh, just, just even sitting in the same room with him was, was nice, just, he spoke in Laotian a lot, and I didn't even understand much at all at first, and just, but just the sound of his voice emanated a kind of peacefulness and humor. So when I started to see that, and then also hear some of these teachings that call up for us to inquire into our suffering and see what's causing it, and and to see what it feels like when we learn to let things be, let things go. Started to feel a little bit of perspective and fruit of that practice. Then, then, then the thought starts coming up, well, where'd this come from? Who's the Buddha? Two thousand five hundred years ago, and then as as part of uh, the monastery, you know everybody does it. You, though at first it didn't mean much. You bow to the Buddha, you chant, do this stuff. You learn hours of chanting, pali. Then you actually start learning what you're saying, actually learning what it means. And so like, for instance, I, I knew this, this chant about the blessings of the Buddha, which goes on for several minutes, for a long time before I really knew what the words meant. Then I started noticing, what does that first stanza mean, puja ja puja nianang, to praise that which is worthy of praise. And sometimes I would start to notice what happens when I really sincerely recite the teachings of the Buddha or recite the Buddha's name in gratitude. And then and then just notice the space after that. Just as in in a related way, what happened when my friend who was in the Ku Klux Klan I would Praise that which is worthy of praise, even in Him. The blessings which flow from that was an unexpected friendship. And maybe a little bit of good effect. But did did anybody experience today when we chanted that chant today, all that praise energy for whatever it was, then did you fill the space after the chant? it's just me putting some ideas out each person has to consider it themselves i like feel grace happen when you open yourself to to response when one praises because praising means you're opening yourself to the possibility of something praise can be a gesture of open to the possibility of something good So there's puja, and then I think even more important is then the pausing and and feeling the effect. It's a little bit like even plugging in to the electricity, opportunity to connect with power. Why is the first refuge Buddha? I mean, if he's gone, if he's just dead. Why do we have that as the First Refuge? The dead Buddha. <laughs> but it isn't that way. The First Refuge is is in... We, we, we chant it every morning and every evening. Epictis o the Blessed One, the Awakened One, the Knower of the Worlds, the Serene One. And when we say, Bhutang Sarangachami, I go to refuge to the Buddha, then what that's still present tense this is known as a timeless refuge i think again i don't it's not that easy to talk about this but i think sometimes we don't take full advantage of that refuge in the time of the buddha when he was alive physically you might see the Buddha as, oh, wow, there's a radiant person. There's someone who's who's serene, who's wise, who's compassionate, who's fearless. Perhaps you think that. What am I? Then there's duality, this sense of, oh, they can do it. So faith faith arises and something brings us to the Buddha and we say, uh, Lord, I'm suffering. What do I do about it? How can I? negotiate this life so at first the Buddha really seems to be that which is outside us and in that time the Buddha would speak he'd actually speak and this is what's recording in in the whole Pali Canon of uh, discourses and he would say give a teaching on suffering and investigating suffering look at our relationship with desire our relationship with views and opinions, and then we would, <coughs> in our, in the realm of our mind, this being an appear Buddha who'd say something, and then we would digest that, work on that. But those teachings always pointed us back to the mind themselves. But there was a seeking, there was a question, and then there was a response. It helped. But someone who only kept the, the Buddha apart from himself, one of the monks who just stared at the Buddha all the time. Oh, golden skin. Beautiful features. Over six feet tall. Radiant. See he, he was the Buddha got fed up, so to speak. So he sent the monk away to branch, monastery. Sent him to the Devan Vihara or something. <laughs> and then the monk uh, was uh, moaning and crying, I've been sent away by the Buddha, I've been sent away by the Buddha. And the Buddha miraculously appears to him in a vision before him in his meditation said, What are you crying about? You sent me, you sent me away. And the Buddha points to his body and says you think this is the buddha you think this body is the buddha it's going to die it's going to go back into the earth like all conditioned things and he told this monk he who sees the dhamma he who sees the truth sees the buddha he's the one who really sees the buddha So the Buddha used his manifested form as a magnet, a great magnet machine that would draw people in. But at the same time, his wish is for beings to experience what he experienced. So he would always then point people to the heart, where you really find the Buddha, where you really find the awakened one, the one who's free, the one who's wise, the one who's serene. And how does one become a Buddha? I mean, how did this Buddha arise in the world who had this incredible gift for teaching and uplifting so that in a way that could even last for thousands of years again this just comes through the scriptures we can consider it ourselves whether we want to take it or leave it but the Buddha himself said that eons and eons and eons ago when he was a spiritual seeker he um, That's when his name was Samaita, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, And he met a Buddha. met his first Buddha. This radiant being, this Dipankara Buddha. Buddha's name was Dipankara. Ages ago. And uh, he saw um, that there was a puddle. I I might have it a little wrong, but I think there was a puddle. And he didn't want this Buddha to have to step in the mud, so he, he thought, oh, gosh. He felt such faith just seeing this being that he threw himself down in the, in the puddle and the Buddha to walk over him. And I think the Buddha said something like, Buddhas don't walk over people. <laughs> 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 but he, he said, Oh, how can I be like you? Something like that. He really, he really brought forth the resolve before this Buddha. Wouldn't it be something? I'd really like to be like you. Be really wise, really compassionate, really able to help living beings. And the Dipankara Buddha saw that this this fellow was uh, sincere and had tremendous, meant what he said. He actually gave him a prediction right on the spot and said, In this future age you will be Buddha, Sakyamuni Buddha. And then he brought forth the resolve, and, and the resolve that every single Buddha brings forth is, living beings are numberless. Everywhere we look, there are living beings. I resolve to help them all. I resolve to, to bring all of them to safety. First vow of every Buddha. Taints, or what's the good English word? Uh, My mind's gone blank. Um, defilements, or the that which obstructions obstructions, hindrances, are inexhaustible. We see them everywhere: greed, hatred, delusion, jealousy, envy, doubt. In the next lion's roar of a resolve, I vow to cut through them all. Just a second vow. Adamantine Adamant Adamantine vow. Third vow is Dhamma doors are numberless, meaning for some of us the way to truth is, is entered through the devotional path. That, that's where we that's where it opens up for us. To some of us the Dhamma door is is through meditation. We really get a feeling for stillness. To some of us our Dhamma door might even be music. To some of us, our Dhammador might be uh, chanting, just devotion to the Buddha's name. To some of us, it might be kindness meditation. Anyway, dhamma, there's supposedly 84,000 Dhammadors. And the Buddha vowed, Dhammadors are numberless. I vow to master them all. And the fourth vowel. All Buddha, Buddhas, is the Buddha path is unsurpassed. Meaning, awakening to a Buddha is is the ultimate. It's the flowering of of beingness. I vow to accomplish it. And this is the this is the fire. This is the fuel that that uh, for the welfare of all living beings that. Uh, motivated this uh, Sumedha to appear and appear and appear lifetime after lifetime, cultivating skill just as we're doing, just for the sake of bringing forth this awakening for the welfare of all. Well, we're living beings. We're one of those living beings. If the Buddha vowed to bring us all to safety, so if it's all right to ask the question, Buddhas when his uh, ask questions to the Buddhas when his body was there, and it brought great blessings. And those who got obsessed with his body said, "Hey, you really find the Buddha by looking into the Dhamma." Then have we forgotten now to, to still look into this, this praising the Buddha and being willing to ask questions of the Buddha? Some oh, don't be silly. Good God. Well, then that's useful. Even even if even if just the thought why don't you ask a question to the Buddha brings up such a strong response and that was a useful exercise just to see that we have a strong sense of no way but then we asked ourselves the question what does it mean then the praise that which is worthy of praise really brings the greatest blessings what does it mean yes the Buddha appointed us to look within and to touch that inner buddha, that that inner capacity to be wise, where we can see the truth. But I think if we deny, just through a strong sense of denial, we deny that there can be help, we, we, we cut ourselves off from a lot, unnecessarily. And I suppose what I want to say is I think it can be very useful if sometimes this is group puja when we bow to the Buddha and chant together and and feel that sense of grace perhaps or sense of response as we open ourselves and align ourselves with these timeless jewels of the refuge. But also in our own private space I think it's quite important to investigate what happens if I speak into the silence. What does this mean? How do I understand this, Lord Buddha? And it's not so much that you're trying to find the Buddha out there, but honoring the fact that we still are are beings who sometimes are very dualistic, who sometimes yearn for answers, who sometimes really would like good advice who sometimes feel trapped by our sense of separateness and it's i think a legitimate thing to say uh lord buddha help me see clearly or may that which is wise if we prefer to put it in a little more impersonally may that which is wise help me see clearly if a little baby if a child was asking for help we would help So why can't the child in us sometimes speak into the silence? But the difference is, rather than totally projecting the Buddha outside, when there's this kind of prayer or this kind of talk, there's the possibility of embracing it with mindfulness so that we can hear our conversation with Buddha, with that which is wise we can allow that sense of self-consciousness to become conscious to become embraced by our mindfulness and then let it go back into the silence again and allow ourselves to listen in silence to the response not that we have to hear a voice speaking out of the sky but sometimes we're so trapped by our sense of views and opinions that we don't trust this this jewel of awakening that we have in the heart that we can actually speak to hey what does this mean and actually then be open humbly, not knowing what's out there not knowing what's in here open to the possibility of what moves into that empty space that's what faith, I think is is a gesture in faith the willingness maybe even to give up our incredible ironclad conviction that there's nothing out there (coughs) obviously the opposite we have to be concerned about this kind of grasping at the idea of, oh Buddha, oh Buddha, help, help. But we can meditate on that too and allow that to become conscious. I think sometimes Western Buddhists, because of having reacted to, I think unskillful sometimes, use of devotion in Christianity, have reacted and then thrown prayer right out the window. And and, and because the way at least in which modern Christianity was taught was so other oriented, so faith oriented, so Jesus and God all out there, the Trinity didn't even know and much explained it. We didn't know what it meant. Then we encountered these wisdom teachings and they were wonderful. But, but remember that, that, that the Buddha balanced faith and wisdom the, the, the two balance each other the, 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 two, the two the two aspects to our spirit What I'm saying is I encourage everyone to really investigate the possibility of this other power. It's called other power. The one of the extremes, or, or not extremes, on one side of the spectrum in Buddhism of other powers what's called the Pure Land School of Buddhism, where, where one just chants the Buddha's name. That's all one does. Namo Amitabha Buddha, Namo Amitabha Buddha, Namo Amitabha which means the buddha of light the buddha of light the buddha of immense light and life on my year-long retreat of silence there was one three-week period where that's all i did i just chanted nothing else just the buddha's name that was really nice really wanted to get a feeling for the devotion that allows us to make our life so simple that we just have that name. And then when the, those words are going by, then when we begin to see that they're just words, they're just words, we can, saying the Buddha's name, we can disengage from the words because they're moving and one can get a feeling for that timeless presence of the Buddha. But in doing that Pure Land devotional method, one is allowing oneself also to receive the blessings of Buddha, to receive the blessings of that vow power of the Buddha, that determination through lifetimes of may my life be of benefit to others. If one only chants wanting the Buddha out there to help me, then one still maintains uh, duality and one never meets the Buddha really. But if in, in doing devotional chanting allowing one's mind to become centered then praising the buddha which might at first feel out there when one starts to see the rising and ceasing of thought that duality then becomes comprehended by the heart and it yields a sense of awakening to the non-dual to the present to the here and now buddha so that devotional chanting moves eventually towards insight. The other extreme is the meditation. When one is, or the other side of the spectrum, is when one doesn't like doing any devotion. One, One's devoted to meditation, which is a devotion, a very pure devotion. It's turning to the most refined form of the Buddha, the, the Buddha which is the truth. So we meditate. The difficulty with that, though, is there's no devotion in our life, and we're just meditating. And the and the and Mara and his armies charge. <laughs> even even one battalion sometimes can finish us off. That sometimes we just feel buried, buried by the stuff. Just buried. And then one tends to, you know, maybe give up. And this is where wise retreat is advisable. A good general knows how to pick his battles. A good general does not always charge. A good general knows when when to call in reinforcements. And, and that's where sometimes, and, and I, that's why I like experimenting when we're sitting and then sometimes just do a chant and then notice if the energy changes, just notice if there's any difference, just to see that. Because traditionally when there's a gesture of faith, which is that spiritual faculty I'm talking about, that leads to wirya, the second spiritual faculty, which is, is energy, we get some energy again, you can keep going. Yes, it has to then be balanced by that the middle overseer of the whole lot, which is mindfulness. You get gestures of faith, connect us to the energy, keep it under the guard of mindfulness. As mindfulness is sustained in the fourth spiritual faculty, samadhi or collectedness starts to happen. more unshakability happens, the more unshakable, the more collected. And one pointed or unified on truth that the heart is, then wisdom, the last spiritual faculty naturally arises, the clear seeing of things. But sometimes it's just skillful when our sword of wisdom just is, is kind of being broken and battered, then then sometimes it's important just to, to bow. I don't know what's happening, just Go back to the basis. Go back to, I don't know what's happening, but I do know, ah, I believe in being awake. Buddha. I praise the Buddha. I know it's wonderful to be a Buddha. I'd like to be one. Go back to Buddha. Go back to Dhamma, the true nature of things It is here now. Everything else might be in chaos, but we can put our head down and say, ah, but there must be truth here because it's all truth. I take my refuge in Dhamma. Sangha. I do have a choice. There's a family of saints and sages all around us. And there's a a will within that can choose to align itself at least with the conviction I don't want to kill anybody. Even if it's only that much we can know. I don't want to harm. May my life be for the welfare of others. Even in the midst of chaos, a devotional gesture can can reconnect us again. I, I really would Well, all I can say is, it's been important to me in in helping balance the wisdom practice, the cutting into, the seeing the nature of things. I think it was brought up in the discussion today. You know, you don't want to repress things, and that's important. But also, one doesn't want to get uh, drowned by stuff either. And it is a legitimate thing to sometimes take a holiday it's a legitimate thing to sometimes say hey look the situations here I know it's going to be here my intention is to come back and deal with it but I need a break I need to I need to pull back for the sake of gathering for the sake of refreshing the heart so we go on holiday hopefully to um, I mean to me this is a real holiday what we're on a holy day but hopefully to refresh the heart to help clear see more clearly so that then one can come back and maybe realize where one's been banging one's head on the wall, can more skillfully deal with the situation. And that's all I was saying before, a good army does this. Well, this is what Samatha is. Samatha, or calm meditation, is a holiday, but it's a skillful holiday. And you don't pay, you know, they are not asking for big, big money. The, the investment is, is, is training of the heart. This building is a kaya Weka. It's called a holiday for the body. The Buddha said there's three we viwakas, three holidays, three places of solitude. Kaya viwaka is for the body. I mean, the building's important. It's, it gives us a space. But it's, it has limitations. You can't always, you can't carry this building around on your back. The next holiday house is called a chitta viwaka, or the 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 place of the heart. Now, this, this Kaya Viveka, this, this building in this place, in this space, is giving us opportunities to build a holiday home, so to speak, in the heart. To cultivate skill with how to train the heart, or the citta, to learn to be sustained on something that's pretty available, the breath, the feeling in the body, to sustain To learn to tap into a source of joy that's that's imminent, that's that that's part of our being. That doesn't harm anybody. That comes just from collecting ourselves, appreciating suchness, steadying the mind, steadying the heart. Learning sometimes to, okay, worry comes. What decision am I going to make about the house? What about the mortgage? Um, uh, did I say the wrong thing to my dad? And what about that uh, conversation? And yes, that's all out there. But sometimes when you're walking through the street, you don't have to stop every person that you meet. Sometimes you just want to, you want to go through, not talk to every person. And sometimes when these concerns are coming, it's very useful not to have to wrestle every thought that comes into the mind. It's exhausting. It's a very useful and important skill to be able to say, not now, not now. Not to hate it, but I'm coming. I'm going to the breath, I'm going to the breath, going to the breath. going to the breath. Just developing a little skill at how to collect and gather ourselves. It's like going on a holiday. That's our jitto viveka. It's our refuge in the heart. Yes, if we just think we can stay there, then we, we, we get like what uh, you were talking about. If we just get to where we want to stay there and attach to that calm, then we got a big problem coming. Because you, you can't stay just on the breath all the time. I mean, stuff comes in. The radio goes on. The, the bell goes off. The... The leg feels like it's going to fall off. See? <laughs> All kinds of stuff happens. So Wake is like my childhood memory of the lake. I grew up on Lake Chickamauga. And when in a summer's evening, the lake is like glass, and it's so smooth, and there's not a ripple anywhere, and you can whisper and seem to hear it on the other side of the lake, and you go, ah, oh. almost breathless to then look at it the stillness. But then when a motorboat comes, the ripples come, sound echoes, the wind blows, and no matter how much skill we develop with our meditation calming on an object, it's like that. Enjoy it while it's there, it's wonderful, but it's not permanent peace, and if we attach to that we will just get frustrated. But nevertheless, it still is an important skill because any degree of collectedness we gather, then we can go back and look at those thoughts that are bothering us, that need understanding, the sadness, the irritation, the worry, the doubt. And with the power, with the power of, of mind, a collected mind, then we can use that and insight arises, we see the nature of things. So we have some tools. Investigate this this possibility of relationship with Buddha. Allowing ourselves even to in a quiet moment somewhere privately talk or whisper or think and then but enveloped by our mindfulness, listen to that being in us that wants awakening, that wants guidance. Listen to that. Let that merge then with the silence of Buddha investigate praising that which is important to us. It doesn't matter if we believe in a fully enlightened Buddha, even my Ku Klux friend man, even when we praise anything worthy of praise, just noticing the, the effect. And can we bring praise into our life, reverence into our life to some degree? Then, then we see faith devotion giving rise to some energy some useful energy useful inspiration to willingness to give ourselves to the practice guided overlooked balanced by our mindfulness our presence of mind all always has the capacity to keep us in touch when things are getting too confusing too heavy sometimes mindfulness says i think we better retreat just bow for a second or just say i don't know i don't understand but I do remember my refuges in being away, so pulling back, mindfulness, the fourth spiritual faculty, collectedness, the fifth spiritual faculty, wisdom. We'll talk more about these as our ten days go, but these, these are the five aspects to our spiritual nature which need to blossom for, for our uh, awakening. I've run out of things to say this evening, and I wish, uh, may the blessings of the Triple Jewel guide us all uh, onwards and uh, to peace, to compassion, and to true clarity.